0: several different passages of scripture today so you can keep your Bible open at that passage for now but I'll be mentioning various other references today as well. In 1807 the British Parliament finally passed into law a bill that had been fought over for decades. It was called the Slave Trade Act championed among others by an evangelical Christian named William Wilberforce. The Slave Trade Act was public legal recognition of the fact that the practice of kidnapping usually African men, women and children from their homelands, packing them like animals into ships and sailing them across the Atlantic Ocean to be the property of wealthy landowners, that that was a despicable practice and was a violation of the sanctity of human life. 200 years later, our nation rightly looks back ashamed that we ever believed that that practice was anything other than barbaric and an insult to human dignity. We're ashamed that what was entirely legal many years ago, that that was entirely legal. But we're thankful that what our nation used to believe and used to permit, we no longer do. We changed our minds And we repented. And yet, today, for more than 50 years in Great Britain, for six years in the Republic of Ireland, and for roughly three years in Northern Ireland, we have permitted something even more barbaric, arguably, than slave trading the killing of unborn children. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to take the punishment for our sins upon himself, including the sin of abortion. In the passage we just read, he looked at a woman right in the eye. A woman who had likely been abused, if not physically or sexually, then socially, in one way or another by men for most of her life. A woman who was an outcast, who was ashamed. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you. See, Jesus came to take away our sin and our condemnation. And as Christians, we must make that message very clear to those who simply support abortion in principle, those who think about having an abortion, those who, for one reason or another, have had an abortion. But we must also see today's reality in our nation, which is essentially abortion on demand. For the wickedness that it is, we must be ready to speak out against it and we must pray that as we do so, our nation would repent of it I want to think very, hopefully, very straightforwardly about this subject today. About, by considering what the Bible says, what the science says, how our world objects, and how we must respond. And so, first of all, today, what the Bible says about the sanctity of life. And uh, two or three things to highlight to you. First of all, the Bible says that human life is unique. Human life is unique. Over and over again in Genesis chapter one, the pattern. Is repeated. We we got a, a taste of it earlier. God said, "Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was." And all of it, of course, good and very good. But when God came to create human beings, uh, He did something completely different, and it's explained to us in a completely different way. The pattern is interrupted. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, "Let us make man in our image." After our likeness. Notice the Trinitarian language there. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and so forth. And then later on it says, so God created man in his own image. (coughs) In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. In chapter 2 verse 7 of Genesis goes into a little bit more detail as we read earlier telling us that God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then when it came to making Eve, God purposefully puts Adam into a deep sleep and in some quite miraculous way takes a rib of Adam's and that rib becomes uh, the basis of which God creates Eve, again in a miraculous way. Now God did not need to do any of that to make human beings. He could have simply spoken and human beings could have come into existence just like every other part of creation. The point is, friends, that God purposefully created human beings in a unique way. In a way that tells us that we are not like the rest of creation. We're different. We are distinct. We have greater worth and value. We are image bearers of God. Now to be sure we are to cherish every part of creation. What we call the natural world as well as as animal and and plant life and so on. We are to respect it and to cherish it. But human life is more special and more valuable. It is unique because we are made in the image of God. Uh, And there's a huge amount we could say about what that means to be made in the image of God. And you can perhaps go back and listen again to other sermons on that. I preached on that myself a year and a half ago. There are many other uh, preachers who have preached on the subject as well of of what it actually means that we are made in God's image. It it entails many things. Uh, Human beings feel things and think about things and perceive things that animals simply don't. Animals, for example, don't feel shame for the things that they shouldn't do. When two male lions are rivaling each other for territory, they fight each other. They might even uh, fight to the death. And no one is particularly bothered about it because that's nature. They are animals. They're not people. Two humans fight and one of them kills the other. The police get called. The murder investigation starts because... Human life is sacred, it is unique, it is not to be simply taken away. And so there's much, much more we could say about what it means to be in the image of God, and I'll, I'll refer to it and hint at it throughout the sermon. But the very first two chapters of our Bible, friends, as well as the whole of Scripture, make very clear that Darwinian evolution is a lie. We are not mere beasts. We're not slightly better, smarter apes than the other apes that still exist. We are uniquely created male and female image bearers of God. So the Bible says that human life is unique. Secondly, the Bible says that human life begins at conception. Human life begins at conception. We sang the words of Psalm 139 earlier. Listen to them again Of course, this is poetic language. It's putting across literal truth in a poetic way. But Psalm 139, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. That word substance there. uh, It's the only time it's used in the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, See this is God's word friends. Speaking. uh, It's way ahead of science and and all the rest. And and telling us that that's how our lives begin. We are this this substance. We are this intricate weaving together of, of cells. But nonetheless of. Those cells making up an identity, a a life, a human being. In your book, he says, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Just let those words tumble around your mind and heart. You, God, formed my inward parts. You made me. He says, God had already laid out all the days of his life before he was even born. We know what has to happen physically, biologically for life to grow in the womb. But the Bible is here saying that as well as the physical and biological friends, there is a spiritual dimension to it. God places life there. Psalm 51 verse 5 tells us additionally, the uh, says, in sin did my mother conceive me? That's a comment from the psalmist on himself, of course, not his mother. Although his mother being a, a sinner as well. But he, what he's saying is to be a sinner is to be a human. To be human is to be a sinner. But he says at the moment of conception, he had a human soul. A flawed soul, but a soul nonetheless from conception. And that soul again proves, friends, that we are made... In the image of God. Animals do not have souls. And so human life begins. A conception. And it begins miraculously. Every single human life. The work of God. In the secret place. And then the third thing the Bible tells us. Is that the Bible does not treat born and unborn human life. Differently. The Bible does not treat born and unborn human life Differently. They're not of different values. They're not in different levels of importance. And we'll see later that this is now the real issue in the abortion debate. Those who argue in favour of abortion cannot argue that it's not a human life uh, based on the science. What they actually argue now is it's not valuable human life. It's not fully developed or it's not uh, fully functional. And so therefore it's of lesser value than other forms of human life. Friends, the Bible does not make that distinction. In Luke chapter 1 verse 39 and following we have the story of Mary traveling to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Mary has just found out that she will be the mother of the Lord Jesus. Elizabeth is already six months pregnant with John the baptizer. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 41 we read, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She says to Mary in verse 43, Why is this granted to me (coughs) that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The baby leaped for joy. Now, setting aside the fact that Elizabeth, speaking through the Holy Spirit, says that her baby leaped for joy, which is a human action, a human emotion. The word used to describe John the baptizer when he is still in his mother's womb. It's translated in our Bibles there uh, in, uh, in verse 43 of Luke chapter 1. It's translated as baby. That particular Greek word. Well that particular Greek word is also used in Luke chapter 18 verse 43. When Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Little babies perhaps, little Children, the age of some of the boys and girls here in church this morning. And that word, friends, is the same word that is used to describe unborn baby John in his mother's womb. See, they're all children. They're all image bearers of God. From the moment of conception, a unique human life is there, which, like all human life, is precious, specially designed by God. And so, boys and girls in church this morning, you have been specially designed by God. Your life is precious to Him and precious to your mum and dad and precious to all of us in church this morning. God knew about you before you were even born. God has ordained the days of your lives, boys and girls. He, he, knew, he, knew, he knew the first day of your life even before you were born, and He knows the last day of your life. Human life is unique. Human life begins at conception. And born and unborn human life are of equal value. That's what the Bible says. Secondly, I want to consider very briefly what the science proves. What the science proves. And quite simply, friends, the science backs up the Bible. From a biological, physiological perspective, from the moment of conception, scientifically speaking... It is beyond dispute that a separate, unique, individual human being exists. Uh, Nancy Piercy, who has written an excellent book, I would I really highly commend this book to you. It's a book called Love Thy Body. And it deals with all these issues of abortion and gender identity and sexuality and all these things. It's an excellent book. Uh, she quotes in it an article from the Daily Telegraph in April 2016. Uh, which described how scientists had actually caught on camera the moment of conception when the sperm meets the egg. And Piercy Piercy says in her book, scientists recently discovered that when a sperm meets an egg, an explosion of tiny sparks erupts from the egg at the exact moment. Uh, Scientist Sarah Napton said, to see the zinc radiate out in a burst from each human egg was breathtaking. Piercy comments, human life literally begins in a bright flash of light. And so scientists and the amazing technology that we have now, have been able to catch on camera something of the miracle of life being conceived. Scientific evidence has conclusively shown us that the precise moment when male and female chromosomes meet, a, a unique genetically coded strand of DNA is created. It's not the mother's DNA, it's not the father's DNA, it is brand new. And that tiny microscopic strand of DNA, friends, contains the information that will decide a human's gender, hair colour, eye colour and hundreds of other characteristics. By three weeks gestation, three weeks, the heart of that little body has started to beat, even if it can't be picked up on scans. And it is growing at a a rate of one million cells per second. By four weeks, that little life, which is no bigger than a poppy seed, it already knows which parts of it will become the digestive system, and the pancreatic system, and everything else. By six weeks... Some women still wouldn't even realise they're pregnant at this point. The baby's heart is pumping between 80 and 150 times per minute. The cheeks and jaw are already developing, as are the vital organs. By eight weeks, depending on the rate of growth, a baby's brainwaves are developing rapidly. And if you were to try to draw blood from the baby's heel with a needle... It would recoil because the brain can already send a message to the body that that needle is going to hurt. By 12 weeks, third of the way through the pregnancy, every major part of the baby's body in all normal circumstances is fully functioning. And in fact, from week 12 to the end of the pregnancy, the main thing the baby is doing is just getting bigger. And along the way, the modern ultrasound can capture a baby With a a smiling expression on its face. Stretching out to get more comfortable in mummy's tummy. Doing all kinds of little dances and jigs from time to time. Smiling babies are of course happy babies whether they're born or unborn. Now with the truth of God's word and the scientific evidence in mind. Here is the horrific reality in our country today. According to the Pro Life Campaign Group, both lives matter since the nineteen sixty seven act that legalised abortion in England and Wales, more than eight million abortions have taken place there. That's a million more than the population, the whole population of the island of Ireland. In february twenty twenty one, Health Minister Robin Swan announced that more than a thousand abortions had taken place in Northern Ireland since the change of law that was forced upon our province in twenty nineteen. And in the last 10 years, in England and Wales, of the almost 2 million abortions carried out, four were recorded as being for the purpose of, quote, saving the life of the mother. Four out of, what was that, 2 million. I'll spare us all from going into the mechanics of how these abortions are carried out, but it is, as you will no doubt be aware, abominable. If it's a second trimester abortion, Quite literally, a body is pulled apart. So we're living in a culture, friends, that does not accept the teaching of Scripture and has even chosen to ignore the scientific evidence, that ridiculous phrase that we kept hearing during the pandemic, follow the science. Well, follow the science on this, and abortion should be illegal. When it comes to abortion and any number of other issues, our society is doing what Paul describes in Romans 1 verse 18, suppressing the truth, suppressing the truth, trying to ignore it, willfully going against it in horrendous, abominable ways. And so I want to think for a few, moment, a few minutes, thirdly, about how the world objects to the sanctity of life. How the world objects to the sanctity of life, to the Bible's teaching upon it, and even to the scientific evidence. And the first and most common and most lazy objection, of course, that we hear is, well, a woman has a right to do what she wants with her body. Well, firstly, scientifically, when a woman decides to have an abortion, she's not doing something with her body. She's deciding to do something with someone else's body, her child's body. As I've just just said, the science is clear on that. And one of the first things that happens when a baby is born, as many of us here know, is that the umbilical cord gets cut. So if you want any further proof that there are two bodies involved in a pregnancy, there it is, there is a cord connecting them, two different bodies. So a woman who decides to have an abortion is making a decision about someone else's brain, someone else's heart, someone else's arms and legs and life. And secondly, in answering this objection, a woman has a right to do what she wants and so forth. None of us has an absolute right to do whatever we want to do with our bodies. The law of the land does not permit us to use our bodies to drive at 90 miles per hour down the A1 and expect to not get a ticket from the police. A woman is not allowed legally to prostitute her own body. She can't drink and drive. She can't trespass into someone else's private property. It's a very poor, lazy argument, both scientifically and rationally, to just say, well, it's the woman's body so she can do what she wants. Second objection. The unborn baby, and I maybe wouldn't be free, as quite like this, but this is really what people are getting at by this objection. The unborn baby is like a parasite in the mother's womb. It depends on her to survive. Her life is more important And therefore she should have the say over whether that life goes on or not. Well again scientifically speaking a baby is not a parasite. A parasite attaches itself to a host life. And drains the life from the host to grow stronger itself. To the point where the original life dies out. It will get stronger the parasite will as the host gets weaker. An unborn baby does not do that. Now, an unborn baby will at times exhaust his or her mother, make her feel sick, sore and tired, as some of you well know, but it is not killing her. In fact, in certain situations, a baby, uh, and I hope I'm getting my wording right in this, but a baby, I believe, is actually able to send stem cells via the placenta to the mother uh, when she, in, in particular circumstances. She has suffered organ failure or undergone transfusion. What the pro-abortion supporters are really driving at here is that the mother has the right to do what she wants with an unborn baby because the child depends on her. In other words, since she gives life to that child, she has the right to take away that life. But a newborn baby depends on its mother as well. We have a four-month-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. I can tell you, based on the evidence so far, they wouldn't last long if we left them to it. What about people with disabilities? What about the elderly? When they become too dependent on healthier relatives, do those more able relatives have the right to decide whether it's really worth helping them any, more, any longer? See, those are, that's the, that's the thinking, that's the, that's the logic of Darwin's theories taken to their logical conclusion. As they were, by the way, in places like Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union. Third objection. The unborn child is a human but not a person. You may have heard this objection at various times. A human but not a person. See the most honest pro-abortion uh, loyalists. They, they won't even disagree with you now that life begins at the moment of conception. They can't do that because the science is so clear. So the most honest pro-abortionists don't even claim that anymore. Instead, they will claim other things. Uh, they'll claim that though it's human life, it is potential human life. It's not fully rounded personal human life. Listen to what one British journalist, Antonia Senior, has said in recent years. Again, this was quoted in Piercy's book. This journalist said, My daughter was formed at conception. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. But then she goes on, yes, abortion is killing, but it's the lesser evil. It's the lesser evil, according to this woman. It is taking human life, she doesn't shy away from that. But it's less evil than making a woman become a mother when she'd rather not or making a woman rethink her career choices, or whatever the case may be. Here's what Mary Elizabeth Williams, a feminist and pro-abortion writer, has said. The fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. A life worth sacrificing because the woman's life is more important. Never mind the fact that half of all abortions are little women. And what this has led to is a whole plethora of people debating about when a fetus, which is actually just an old Latin word that means baby, but they use it because it's less personal than baby. But people debate about when a baby becomes a human person. That's the distinction that is being made now, that you can be human and yet somehow not be a person. Who decides then when we become a person? What do you have to do? What do you have to have achieved or experienced? How old do you have to be? No one who's working from anything other than a biblical worldview can answer the question of when human personhood begins. We can answer the question. You're a person from the moment of conception because you're made in the image of God. Piercy says, Human beings do not need to earn the right to be treated As creatures of great value. Our dignity is intrinsic. Rooted in the fact that God made us. Knows us. And loves us. You're a person because God decided that you would be created in the first place. And so friends as Christians. We're the ones who can answer those questions. And we're the ones who can put those questions. To people who have not thought through. The full implications of their abortion theology. And when we talk about abortion or when we find ourselves with opportunity to discuss this with people, we can use the words that our equality-obsessed, tolerance-obsessed culture loves. But we can use them properly. Words like all-equal, valuable, dignity, human rights. We can use those words properly because we know the value of human life. One final objection that uh, you sometimes hear... Uh, against the sanctity of life you haven 't been through what the woman has gone through. maybe she was uh, maybe she was uh, physically abused, and that resulted in this pregnancy. Maybe this baby was conceived in horrible circumstances, and this is sometimes referred to as the hard cases and of course, I certainly cannot imagine the trauma and the suffering that a woman would have gone through in some of those situations that i 've just mentioned, and we would certainly want to show every ounce of compassion and support and help that we possibly can to anyone in our path who has been through something as horrendous as that. But friends, the reality is that when we begin to talk about these so-called hard cases, we're talking about only one or two percent of all the abortions that are carried out in England and Wales and probably elsewhere as well. But certainly for England and Wales, two percent of abortions happen in these circumstances. Of all those millions of abortions. So when Stephen Nolan or William Crawley or whoever it is gets to the but what about X scenarios? Well we're talking about a tiny slither of the abortions that take place every year in the United Kingdom. And again, are those lives worth less than others because of the sins involved or the mistakes involved or the trauma involved in those lives coming about? Does an unborn baby have to pay the ultimate price for someone else's crime? What most of these objections really amount to is a refusal on the part of our culture to accept that marriage and sexual activity and children are all linked. That's God's design. God's word says that sexual intimacy is to be between one man and one woman in the context of marriage and that one of its purposes, not its only purpose, but one of the purposes is, in most circumstances, to produce children. And our society has rejected the fact that all of those things go together and it has idolised sexual experience as though it can be a casual hobby that has nothing to do with marriage and children And the result is the widespread family and community breakdown and ultimately death that we have in our culture today. But Jesus Christ came to defeat death. He came to provide a way for all of this sin. And it is sin that we've been talking about. But he came to provide a way for it to be forgiven. And for sinners to be redeemed. And so just in closing... As we've thought about what the Bible says, what the science says, how the world objects, we want to think finally today about how we must respond in this whole matter of the sanctity of life today and the lack of respect being shown to it in our society. How we must respond. And friends, we must respond with compassion but not compromise. Compassion, not compromise. We must respond to those who actually live out this choice of what to do with the life of a child, we must respond to them with compassion. The repeated shout of the pro-abortion movement is, don't you dare put down women. Don't get in their way, don't disrespect them, don't try to make decisions for them. And while we would disagree with why people are saying that, to justify abortion, we have to at least recognise that Partly what causes them to say these things is the trampling down of the dignity of women in one way or another over many decades. Whether it be sexism in the workplace, objectifying of women's bodies through a porn-obsessed uh, culture, uh, the subjugation of women in other wicked ways today. It's led to this backlash which has taken to illegitimate extremes, albeit by the pro-abortion supporters and so as Christians, friends, we need to do everything we can to show compassion and, res- and support and respect to women and girls of all ages. Whether they are uh, caught up in these experiences or not. To be pro-life is not just about being pro-the-life of the unborn child. It has to also mean being pro-the-life of perhaps a young mother who has found herself in the unexpected situation of becoming a mother and, and having a pregnancy. And what the church should be demonstrating to the world is that actually it's in the family of God's people that women and children get the respect and the love that they deserve. Abortion is supposed to be about respecting a woman's choice. And yet in surveys quoted by Nancy Piercy, just over half of women said that they had actually felt pressured into having the abortion, sometimes by other women. An even bigger majority said that they regretted ever having an abortion at all and had lived with the guilt and the shame of it ever since. Many women have abortions because the father isn't present or is not willing to be involved and she doesn't know what to do. But the church of Jesus Christ teaches a sexual ethic to men that women are to be respected, that you don't pressure her into giving you what you want and then leave her to pick up the pieces That if you want her, you commit to her before God and human witnesses and you sacrifice for her and you stay loyal to her for the rest of your life. So who is it that's really disrespecting and trampling on a woman's rights? Is it the church or is it the culture that says sleep around, abort your baby if you need to and then live with the crushing guilt of it for the rest of your life? The culture, friends, is suppressing the truth. And so we need to know the truth and to be able to fight for the truth, not with our fists or with harsh words, but with the words and the compassion of Jesus Christ for sinners. And sometimes that compassion could be very costly for the church. I was listening to a pastor in America who described how in God's wonderful providence a woman in his church Uh, she, she just was out and about and she happened to come across a 12 year old girl on her way to an abortion clinic. The girl was terrified. But by God's grace this woman was able to assure her if you don't end this pregnancy I will give you everything you need. You'll have all the support for raising this child. The child will be protected, loved, provided for. I'll put a roof over your head. I'll, I'll, I'll look after you and your child. Just please do not end your pregnancy. And this young girl didn't end the pregnancy. But the pastor explained how that has changed the life of not just her. <coughs> not just of the mother. But of this woman who essentially became a second mother to the child. And a second mother to this young girl. But that's the, the costly love. That's the sacrificial love of Christ. Being shown in our world, friends. Would you, would we be ready to offer that kind of compassion and that kind of love? That's what the early church did. Read through the historical evidence. That it wasn't just the, the message that the church preached that stood out in the first and second century AD, it was the church's actions loving the poor, loving women, the widowed, the orphans, the unwanted children. in doing that the church was acting like Jesus who said let the little children come to me and he said to that woman in John chapter 8 I do not condemn you compassion not compromise because what did Jesus say after he said to the woman I don't condemn you he said go and sin no more And he told her that he wasn't condemning her for her sin. Because he would take that condemnation upon himself. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus could say to that woman who had sinned. Who was caught in adultery but who perhaps had been used and abused herself, Jesus could say to her, there's no condemnation for you because he knew that he would take it upon himself at the cross. And that includes uh, his work on the cross, friends, includes the condemnation and the judgment that your sin deserves, that my sin deserves, that the sin of abortion deserves. See, ultimately abortion, as wicked and as abominable as it is, it's not the this, the source problem in our country sin is we got rid of slavery 200 years ago people are still sinning in all kinds of ways today there are still various forms of slavery in our world today we can, we can and we should speak to these touchstone issues but we need to do so preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ who takes away condemnation that's what we must preach to people and show to people That Jesus Christ can take away our condemnation. That there is therefore now no condemnation. Not even for the sin of the killing of the unborn. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.